he didn't send his vice president to do this. This is the best way to poke the panda. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. This is our weekly roundup, where we invite a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. And I am pumped for our incredible panel today. Returning to the roundup is Al Cardenas. Al is a nationally recognized Cuban-American leader in law, business, and politics who served in the Reagan and H.W. Bush administrations. He's been recognized as one of the most influential people in Florida politics, and he's also a former chairman of the American Conservative Union and a two-term chairman of the Republican Party of Florida. Al, welcome back to the show. It's great to see you. Yeah, great to be with you as always. And returning to the roundup is Politicology fan favorite, Susan Del Percio. Susan is a highly sought after crisis communications consultant, political strategist, writer, and MSNBC political analyst. Susan, always good to see you. Thank you for making the time today. It's wonderful to be with you and Al. I haven't seen Al in such a long time. Looking forward to this. (laughs) Me too. On this week's Roundup, first, we will discuss the deal between Joe Manchin and Chuck Schumer and the Inflation Reduction Act. We're also going to look at the move to take out al-Qaeda leader Ayman al-Zawahiri and Speaker Nancy Pelosi's trip to Taiwan. Then we'll look at Tuesday's primary elections and the election deniers who won the Republican primaries and how the results of a Kansas ballot measure could influence the midterms. Finally, when we switch tracks over to Politicology Plus, we're going to discuss the success moderate Democrats are having over more progressive candidates in primary elections. Again, that will be in Politicology Plus, which is our private ad-free version of the podcast where we bring you strategy and analysis you can't get anywhere else. If you're listening to us in the Apple Podcasts app, you can navigate over to the Politicology Show and tap the button that says Try Free, or you can sign up at politicology.com slash plus. We'll dig in right after this. Okay, so last week, Senator Joe Manchin and Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer announced that they had reached an agreement on what is called the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022. So after the $1.7 trillion Build Back Better package died in the Senate last year, Schumer and Manchin worked together on a much narrower plan that would provide money for energy security and climate change and extend the Affordable Care Act subsidies. This bill comes in at $433 billion over 10 years. And the source for that number, well, there seem to be a lot of numbers um, percolating throughout the media. This number comes from Senate Democrats themselves. So if you see other price tags on this bill, they may come from other sources. Um, But this is offset by an estimated $739 billion in increased revenue over the same period. Now, the increased revenue comes from enforcing tax laws that are already on the books, allowing Medicare to negotiate certain drug prices, closing the carried interest loophole, and creating a 15% minimum tax on large corporations. And this carried interest piece um, we should note is is what allows private equity firms and other money managers to treat part of their earnings as capital gains, which have a top tax rate of twenty percent instead of the higher ordinary income tax rate. So this really just applies to essentially Wall Street. Now the bill contains nearly three hundred and seventy billion dollars to tackle climate change. That's the biggest chunk of this spending, and would make it the largest investment in the U.S. Uh, that we've made into tackling climate change but it is smaller than the more than half a trillion dollars to combat climate change that was in the original BBB. 
Senate Dems are claiming that the investments will cut climate pollution by roughly 40% by 2030. But it's important to take a look closer that that is compared to 2005 when emissions peaked. And without these new policies, we would already have been on track to cut 20% of emissions by 2030. So it's a really good talking point, but you need to dig a little deeper to understand the facts there. The biggest share of the funding goes to tax credits and rebates for renewable technologies, from solar panels to wind turbines, heat pumps, energy efficiency, and electric vehicles. Um, And it also invests in improving energy efficiency at industrial sites. Now, despite the title, Economists disagree over whether the bill will provide meaningful relief from inflation, particularly in the short term. According to CNN, two economists who are uh, influential among Democratic leaders are arguing that it will likely only have a small effect at best on tamping down inflation. It could have no impact at all. Uh, In fact, an analysis from the Penn-Wharton budget model found that the bill could cause a small uptick in inflation. Uh, in the short term, actually, and then reduce it later. There were 126 economists who sent a letter to congressional leadership on Tuesday, and they were more optimistic uh, that it would put downward pressure on inflation, but they didn't specify by how much. So Democrats hope to pass this through reconciliation, which we've talked about uh, a lot on the show, especially back when we were discussing Build Back Better, and that would allow them to approve the measure without Republican support um, but of course, in an evenly divided Senate, they still need Arizona Senator Kirsten Cinema to vote for the package. And she has remained characteristically silent over the last week. So here's the way I see this. I'm really interested in you guys in your in both of your takes on this, on both the policy and the politics here. So maybe let's try to separate them. But um the way I see it, there's some really good stuff in the bill. Like it's good that we're investing in uh, renewables and efficient energy production. It's great that we're funding the IRS so that they can actually do their jobs and collect taxes from people who owe them. Uh, it's it's great that this bill is revenue positive. It's not a deficit spend. However, to me, to call it the Inflation Reduction Act seems like it is uh, just a it's a really good rhetorical move because then you have Republicans explaining, i.e., losing as to why it doesn't actually do that, right? But uh, but naming it this is kind of like you know um, naming an anti marriage equality legislation the Defense of Marriage Act or, uh, or 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 like naming the Patriot Act the Patriot Act. But anyway, so there's policy and politics. How are you both thinking about this package, um, Susan? Why don't you lead off? I'm thinking more through the political lens. It was good politics. Um, what's in a title? Well, it's a lot better than Build Back Better. So I'm <laughs> fine right. with it from a <laughs> PR standpoint of view. It matches the need. As a matter of fact, it was actually, I think, essential to use the inflation reduction message at this stage with less than 100 days to go until the election. Inflation is still high. You had to market it this way or otherwise, frankly, what's the point of doing it? Because people would be wondering if you're not finding inflation, like the other stuff's important, but I don't really care. I want I want my my costs to go down. So I think it was it was good politics. I think that it was amazing to watch Mitch McConnell get caught on his heels on this deal. Um, he it was really definitely was snookered um, <laughs> in a big way. He thought he was putting out, you know, getting the support on the chip deal, a nice bipartisanship bill, and never saw the other thing coming, which shows to me that Mitch McConnell is now missing a beat because Mitch McConnell from 10 years ago would have would have made sure that things were buttoned up. So there's that. I actually overall think it's a pretty responsible, moderate package brought forward. 
that you would expect from a Democrat-controlled legislature and the president signing off, a Democratic president signing off on it. I am very impressed that they Democrats have not decided to destroy it among themselves. So that that is probably the biggest success to this legislation. Yet. Yes, yes, I agree. <laughs> yes, because we know when it comes to this type of deal making and legislation, there were two things that hurt it. One, spotlights, which is why the deal was done kind of behind closed doors. You don't want to negotiate in public because then everyone has an opinion. And the other thing that hurts it is time. So the question is, is how quickly can they get this over the finish line before it does start falling apart? Because everyone's not necessarily the Republicans, just the Republicans, but everyone starts kind of putting their two cents in. Yeah, that's I think that's totally right, especially the Mitch McConnell piece. Like it, it is, it's difficult to uh, to overstate just how significant that is. Uh, Al, what's your take on the package and the politics? Well, look, I have been uh, favorably impressed uh, with the record that Joe Biden has been able to build right down the middle. The chips bill, this one, uh, infrastructure and others. And uh, a lot of credit may go to the White House, but I give a lot of credit to the fact that when you have a 50-50 Senate, uh, moderation seems to be probably the best course of action. And for our country, with the kind of debt that we have, I think bigger ideas with a bigger budget uh, are a mistake, especially in this inflationary time period. So, you know, maybe some progressive on the left wanted uh, a much more uh, uh, generous uh, bill in terms of climate change. And a lot of people on the right, uh, especially Republicans, uh, didn't want, you know, 82,000 new IRS agents. They didn't want the, necessarily the 15 percent minimum tax for big corporations, but I'll guarantee you they're not going to fight that hard publicly. And so overall, I thought it was the right bill at the right time. And I give Manchin credit for stepping in when most Democrats thought he had stepped out at just the right time to get something important for our nation done. What really surprised a lot of people is that Manchin was the key to getting this done coming from West Virginia. So I, I, I thought it was a Pretty, pretty cool thing to have happened. Uh, in terms of inflation, I don't think this bill will do a lot to inflation one way or the other, Ron. I'm a firm believer, judging by past history, that inflation is something very hard to get rid of. It kind of turns to, it kind of clings to the economy for a lot longer than people it plateaus. think. plateaus. And yeah. that's because there's not a magic wand that will fix inflation, right? Between labor shortage and and uh, big debt and everything else that we know of, this inflation will probably last a couple of years. The key is to bring it down little by little and bring GDP up a little by little so that the margin where the people, the consumers are hurt uh, gets to be narrower and narrower. And so I'm, I'm hoping we get, uh, that's why I don't believe that causing a recession is a smart way to fight inflation here. You're just hurting the American people on both ends if you do that. So I, I'm willing to live with inflation, have it tick down for the next couple of years, and then uh, increase the GDP and motivate the economy. Yeah. 
I mean, I think I think the situation we're dealing with inflation is is that it's going to plateau and it's gonna the the growth is going to decrease. But we increased the broad money supply with the COVID stimulus funding by about six trillion dollars. You're not going to reel that money supply back in, so you're going to see a period of uh, of high inflation, growth in inflation, and then it's gonna the growth is going to stop. However, you go. you're going to have that permanent increase in the overall money supply, which means that it's not going to Prices aren't going to decrease because of that. They're just going to stay high. And and then, you know, the rest of the economic forces will sort of churn through what that what that implies. But um Susan, let's go back to the politics here because all right, so I think it's pretty obvious that it's dubious to call this the um the Inflation Reduction Act. However, it might not matter politically, right? Because right. if all you see on the Chiron on cable news or if all you see on the local news is Democrats just passed the Inflation Reduction Act, how is that going to first of all, is the, is that going to work? Is that going to be enough for Democrats to say because they love to run on things that we've just done, right? And sometimes policy doesn't really matter to voters especially uh especially in really contested races. Um so the question is is the is the label itself is the accomplishment itself and the accomplishment being named exactly the thing that is the top issue on most voters minds right you're doing the thing i care about is is that going to have an impact on the midterms if democrats can even uh, figure out a communication strategy to brag about it and what would that look like i think it, the name will somewhat blunt the potential horrible outcome for the democrats and because it simply says that we are talking about reducing inflation. We know we've just talked about all the reasons why you just can't you know, wave a wand and have less inflation. Like if we could, Biden would do it. I promise you, if he could, if he had that ability, he'd reduce inflation tomorrow or even yesterday. But it shows that the Democrats care about the messaging. It also gives them kind of a twofer here. They show that they care about the economy, they care about inflation, but they get to tout some of the things that are actually in the bill that don't do those things, but they get to tout it, i.e. climate, something that may help motivate younger voters to the polls in a midterm election. Is it a done, is it, is it the silver bullet? Absolutely not, but it helps. It also, I think the drug pricing could be very significant with with older voters. I think that that is a very important element. And then there's something that's very interesting in here that puts the Republicans in a little bit of a bind. There's that with with going after the the taxes the way they are right now, the Democrats, they're moving more in the populist vein of actually Donald Trump. Let's not forget those are some of the same taxes that Donald Trump said like maybe we have to look at because People should be taxed fairly. So it, it gives a, a little bit of a populist bend that the, Demo, that the Republicans can't fight too hard back on because you're going to say corporations should absolutely not pay any taxes. That's not going to fly with kind of that new Republican base that is out there that responded to Donald Trump's message. So I, again, the name matters because it does get branded that way. But the other things that are in it will help. Um, probably not as much as the overturning of Roe v. Wade, but as far as motivation, which I know we'll talk about, but it was a wise play. Again, and let's just go back to what you highlight. You, you corrected me early on, in, and you're absolutely right to, is if it happens. Yeah. <laughs> if, if this happens. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Al, do you want to do you want to take the odds on whether or not Cinema tanks this, or does she get on board? <laughs> 
I believe she'll get on board. Now, she may get something in the equation to justify why she was sitting idle, but uh, but she'll get on board. It's too big a deal for her not to. Uh, she saw what happened in her native state. Uh, she realizes that uh, you know she uh, she needs the Democrat uh, base vote uh, more than ever, and so I don't think based on Arizona and and the elections in Arizona and the primary, although you know primaries don't tell you a lot about general election. They tell you more about your own party, where it's going, rather than the country as a whole. And I think that's what happened there. And we'll touch that subject, I'm sure, yeah. in a little while. But but my sense is that she'll, she'll come on board and maybe she'll get something out of it. The interesting thing we should note is that so far, the thing we know that she doesn't like that's in this bill is the closure of the carried interest loophole exemption, which is, you know, to your point, Susan, about there being some good stuff in here that Democrats can actually use rhetorically on the campaign trail. You can go say, we just stuck it to Wall Street and they're going to have to pay more taxes. That's exactly what that thing does. Although they can also, it can also be a thing that no one talks about because, okay, fine. And it makes, and it allows the legislation to go through. Right. And then just to, to, just to build on one thing that, that Al just said, um, also, Cinema's not in the same position as Joe Manchin is. Joe Manchin can flip, become a Republican, be welcomed in. He's not going to lose any votes at home. It's not going to be a problem for him, whatever he chooses to do. Cinema gets pretty boxed in if she becomes, if you've got Joe Manchin and now it's only Cinema, that's a tough place for her to be. That's a very and, tough you know, place. Arizona. It's not West Virginia. If you're thinking of, (laughs) one, it's not West Virginia, but if you're thinking of constituents, Arizona is not a place where corporate America resides. It's not New York. It's not Illinois. You know, uh, Arizona is not a place for large corporations. So how much do you want to hold on to that thing about, you know, big corporation tax rates when they're not in your state? And so- (laughs) And, and you've got a tough election coming. So I, I think cinema will eventually join the fray. Good points all around. Okay, let's turn to foreign policy. There's a couple of important pieces of foreign policy news. First, uh, on Monday evening, President Joe Biden announced that the United States had killed Ayman al-Zawahiri, who is the leader of al-Qaeda and one of the world's most wanted terrorists. Uh, or as our friend Mike Madrid put it, there's a whole bunch of Democratic attack ads about Biden's withdrawal from Afghanistan that are now not worth very much. (laughs) Uh, So alongside Osama bin Laden, al-Zawahiri oversaw the September 11th attacks. So here was was killed in a CIA drone strike in Kabul, Afghanistan, over the weekend. So when U.S. forces withdrew from Afghanistan, uh, administration officials said they were going to retain capability for what they call over-the-horizon attacks on terrorist forces inside Afghanistan. That's according to the Washington Post. And this marks the first known counterterrorism strike in Afghanistan since the withdrawal. So let's just take this piece uh, first. How do you think the impact the Dem attack ads were you know, expecting to face around the Afghanistan withdrawal, how do you think that's going to fare? Um, or is that, just, is that issue just off the table now? Is there no way to attack them on the Afghanistan withdrawal now? Susan? I think at this point, it's pretty much off the table, but we don't know what's happening tomorrow or you know, 28 minutes from right now. So 
it, 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 you know, national security can always come back. Foreign policy can always come back. But as a general rule, the way I've seen foreign policy projecting in our political environment for the last 10 years, maybe a little less, is that you get you get a lot of blame when you screw up. But if everything's going OK and you're doing what you're supposed to, it doesn't necessarily gain you anything back. You're just supposed to be Norman, especially now in after going through the, the Trump years, just being stable and having a good, you know, standing in the world with your allies as the United States. That's what's expected. So I don't think you get any points for it. But if something goes wrong, yeah, you, you get hammered. Yeah. You know, Al, I read somewhere, but can't remember where. So if this is inaccurate, we will cut it. But I think it is true that Trump during his presidency had an opportunity to take out this guy and decided not to do it because uh, his people, he didn't think people would recognize his name and that he wouldn't and that nobody would know who he was. And so it wasn't a it wasn't a good enough sort of PR play for him to do it. Well, we, we do know that he uh, he uh, agreed to uh, uh, to the release of 5000 pretty dangerous uh, Taliban folks in Afghanistan. And, uh, you know, when I heard those news, I said, hey, if you're thinking of leaving Afghanistan, what do they put on the table for you to do that? And uh, I never understood that unilateral move. Uh, if somebody has to compare in 24, uh, you know, the strength, if you want to call it that, between Trump and Biden on foreign policy, this will serve Biden well. Uh, you know, in terms of the immediate political benefits, you know, the November elections were two weeks away. I'd say it strengthens Biden and therefore strengthens the Democrats. You know, in November, I'm not sure this will be at the top of the list, but just remember that uh, political marketing that Susan's so good at uh, can be used based on bringing history back. And I think if, if it's a Biden-Trump contest as to who's the toughest guy, uh, this Afghanistan thing puts Biden over the top top in terms of what Trump has done. Biden was criticized severely over the withdrawal strategy. Uh, some of it fair, some of it not, but but it hurt him. And I think this brings him back to a better place in, in terms of that issue. Yeah. And, you know, we should expect to see a bump in his approval ratings, I think, as a right. result of this. Whether it lasts or not, we don't know, but right. I haven't seen the numbers yet. And just uh, fact checking myself, yes, uh, NBC, in fact, reported that little anecdote about Trump back in 2020. Let's look at Taiwan now, because this is uh, this is sort of unfolding. And um, and so the, the dynamic may change by the time we drop this. But as of today, um, this is what we know. During her historic trip to Taiwan on Wednesday, uh, Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi said that her visit was intended to make it unequivocally clear that the United States would not abandon Taiwan. Now, Pelosi is the first sitting Speaker of the House to visit Taiwan in 25 years, and China responded to her visit by launching military exercises. Uh, the China's, uh, China's Ministry of Defense said they began on Wednesday with drills in the seas and airspace surrounding Taiwan. Um, China had also warned of dire consequences for the trip. They even went as far as warning President Biden that those who played with fire would, quote, perish by it. That's according to CNN. Politico is reporting that Beijing called Biden and asked him to restrain Pelosi from committing perverse acts, those are their, their words, against China's territorial integrity. 
And before the trip, Biden cast a little doubt on the wisdom of the trip, saying, you know, the military thinks it's not a good idea right now. That's a quote. Uh, but White House National Security Spokesman John Kirby told Fox News on Wednesday that the White House respected Speaker Pelosi's decision and did not attempt to dissuade her from going. So in addition to the democracy concerns around Taiwan, I also want to point out uh, for our listeners that there's a, little bit, there's a little bit of background you need to know here. Um, Taiwan is the world's largest producer of semiconductors, and it is home to Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company. And that is the go-to producer of leading-edge computer chips for Apple smartphones, AI, high-performance computing. Literally, the electrification of everything depends on these, uh, these chips. And there are major, major economic and national security interests around maintaining our relationship with Taiwan far and away from uh, just supporting democracy in other places. So how are you both thinking about this trip and the vocal support for democracy in Taiwan, Susan? Um, I think anyone who thinks they should tell Nancy Pelosi to bring it in, strength, bring it in, rein it in, make a big mistake. I mean, if anything, I think that that gave um, Biden the reason to really kind of back off and say, go ahead, because there's no way that China's going to dictate what our political leaders do and do not do, and especially Nancy Pelosi. Um, I think this is somewhat of a manufactured crisis. There is no reason for, for this reaction out of China. We've had people go. We've had elected officials. We've had previous speakers, as you've noted, go to Taiwan. She has problems at home. And he was doing his saber rattling over this event because he needed to look strong at home. He continued it by having these live exercises but I think that's as far as it's going to go. There's no reason to escalate it beyond that, even from China's perspective, given their own economic troubles that they are facing. We're in a very interesting time with, with China because they are facing issues. They're watching how we're, inter, we're acting, protecting Ukraine, and therefore by dealing with, with Russia. So they have legitimate concerns there. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't going to be bigger you know, things to consider for the United States when we look at our economy right now is very dependent on China and our relationship there. We have to call it for the way it is. Similar to the headlines that you see that uh, Europe is reliant on Russia for um, gas for gasoline and the cost of, of, of um, energy going up now that there's the embargo. So there's a more complex relationship there. But when you have Republicans and Democrats both applauding Nancy Pelosi, you know that um, it didn't hurt America for sure. <laughs> yeah, good way to put it. Okay. So as I, so this is purely reading the tea leaves on, on my part, but for, for me, there's no way Pelosi did this on her own. This was, this, this is the best way the Biden administration could possibly have used to send a strong message uh, to China you know, without risking a more severe response, right? This is this is the best way to poke the panda, in in other <laughs> words. But but like, the, and it's also we should note he didn't send his vice president to do this. That was also a very intentional decision. So, um, Al, I wonder what you think about that. Now, I'm I'm just speculating, but it seems to me Pelosi didn't just wake up one day and say I want to go visit Taiwan, uh, just because this was. A, obviously a coordinated effort, even though the White House is very clearly trying to keep their distance uh, for obvious reasons from it. What do you think? Yeah, well, I, you know, I was more taken by the timing 
uh, I thought at the beginning of the Ukraine-Russia conflict, China was looking at this as, hey, Russia wins. We've got a pretty good case to be made about our own territorial expansion. And uh, we're cheering for Russia's victory. And so uh, there's clear to me that china that's where China was. As China saw how weak uh, Russia was militarily and how unlikely it was that they would win regardless of the outcome, they pulled back. And it reminded me that China has always been a globalist when it comes to trade, uh, a cheating globalist, but a globalist. But when it comes to their own foreign policy and military might, they've always traveled by themselves. They've, they've never really had allies. And so now China sees that uh, contrary to what they felt six months ago, the European Union's united, NATO strengthened, uh, you know, United States feels more powerful. And so they're probably rethinking what territorial expansion they have in mind. Uh, if you watch the last two years, uh, China building bases throughout Southeast Asia, China, yeah. you know, having exercises that said, hey, we could block global trade if we want to. You thought that China was on the cusp of doing something that could bring us to the brink of real serious crisis. But I think for the time being that pulled off, I was still a little surprised that Pelosi did this now and not, let's say, three months from now. If Ukraine has tilted the scales and begins to show that they will be the eventual victors, because why tempt China? You know, when it comes to reciprocating, doing something with Russia, but uh, but it hasn't happened. It likely won't happen, and so the gambit seems to be paying off in a big way. I don't know when she announced it if I thought it was a wise idea, but the way things have turned out, I think it's good. And and Ron and Susan, I I don't know to what extent the White House was all for her doing this. Now, I'm not saying they wouldn't be for it a couple of months from now, but their eyes are on the price and the price is Ukraine winning. I'm not too sure our Secretary of Defense and our Secretary of State were all that cheerful about the idea. And if you've noticed, neither of them have opined on the trip. Uh, and I, my sense is that they are cautious about it. They probably, if you took their vote, they would have said, great idea, but not now. That's my thinking, yeah. but who knows? Susan? I think you're yeah. so right on this, Al. From a policy point of view, it was really probably not the best timing. I can't help that maybe there were a few people in Biden's political team who says it doesn't look so bad for the United States to look strong against China right now and right. using Pelosi yeah. and ha not using yeah. Pelosi, but having Pelosi take that. But boy, it, I could see that I could see the fight. And and frankly, personally, um, I can't say because I wasn't there. I'm not there, but I would tend to go with the policy people because I think that's more important. But I'm sure there were a couple of political people saying, hey, not the worst yeah. thing. Yeah. 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 I, I think that's right. Uh, well, as we're recording CPAC, just, just for a little bit of contrast here, uh, CPAC is kicking off in Dallas. And last week, we talked about the fact that the authoritarian prime minister of Hungary, Viktor Orban, was invited to speak there at CPAC. So, like, <laughs> Susan, how are you thinking about <laughs> I this, can't, I just, I can't. Like, this juxtaposition Please. of a Democrat going to Taiwan to talk about democracy, which ultimately signals this, uh, this very strong image of America, 
Um, maybe policy-wise, it wasn't the wisest decision, but I think it does ultimately, I think the imagery anyway, accrues to the benefit of the administration. And Republicans inviting an authoritarian to come to speak at one of their biggest events. Authoritarian that just said that he doesn't want his country mixing races. Yeah. That one of his own ministers resigned. Big supporter of him, so resigns. And what does the Republican Party do and the conservatives? They further embrace this monster. Yeah. I mean, this is now going back to very, very dicey terms that the the conservatives are embracing. And it's horrible. Okay, I, I, let me say yeah. that there's no good way of saying that this is a good thing all, happening all in our country. All of the superlative and adjectives, yeah, right. It's, yes. it's terrible. However, could it show the extremism of even further of where the conservative, and I use that term in quotes, meaning conservative CPAC backing Trump folk people, could it help maybe turn some people away from them? Maybe. And that wouldn't be the worst thing. Well, obviously, as a former chairman of CPAC, I- <laughs> yeah, like as, <laughs> as the guy who's been like the conservative. What? What? How do you reconcile this? Well, you don't. Uh, Ronald Reagan has to be turning on his grave. William Buckley has to be turning on his grave. Uh, this is not the conservative movement that I grew up in. To you know, and remember, uh, ACU CPAC went to Hungary first and uh, to hold an event. And now the prime minister of Hungary is coming here at the time when their alliance with Russia makes them, uh, you know, a dangerous foe. And so uh, all of, uh, you know, all of Europe is looking at this, saying, wait a minute, we've strengthened our alliance. And now, you know, in your own country, you're hosting Russia's greatest ally at this point in a conflict. And so I think it's un-American to have this guy in, in here. I think it runs counter to, you know, to the concept that when it comes to foreign conflict, especially when, when it involves military action, we as both parties unite. This is an affront to America. Uh, it's, uh, it, it's not, there's no way to explain this. It's not a conservative effort. It's a MAGA Trump effort. Uh, and uh, that's how I look at it. I, I would say this, it further, there's no doubt that CPAC now is intertwined with Donald Trump a hundred percent. I would say they're in Donald Trump pocket, but I would say it. And so, so the the relationship between Donald Trump and Putin, uh, the silence that Trump has had over this war with Ukraine, uh, the invitation with with uh, Donald Trump's pleasure of this leader to come to CPAC at the same time that Donald Trump is there uh, and meeting with him as well, uh, I still to this point want to have more clarity on what that whole Putin Trump fascination is all about and what Trump's uh, involvement in bringing Hungary's prime minister to CPAC is all about. That, that to me, remains a dangerous mystery in America. And I, I, I hope to have some clear answer of that because it's always worried me since the outset. 
And it worries me even more now that there's a war with Ukraine and we're having Russia's greatest ally come to our shores. Yeah, I don't see CPAC ever coming back or redefining or becoming any. I mean, I can only see them now burning down to the ground after a certain amount of time. Do you see there's any hope? And what it is and what's important, let me preface this for, for the listeners, is that CPAC represented kind of a, a place where conservative ideas could start to gel. It was always seemed a little extreme to some Republicans, but it was where concepts and ideas could be bubbled and talked about. Now it doesn't seem like they have any original thought. And is is that just gone forever? I think so. Uh, you know, you have uh, in my day when I was chairman, we had David French, National Review, the intellectuals that came to CPAC were people who wrote serious pieces on conservative mm-hmm. issues and our policies on issues. And uh, it's now more of a sideshow. Uh, I mean, to some of the guests, I mean, when Steve Bannon is is, is, is kind of up front yeah. as the, you know, and, and all of those speakers, that's not a conservative movement. Yeah. That's something else. And it's turned out to be something else. Uh, I don't want to have anything to do with it. And, uh, and I, it just, my heart, you know, my, my heart is at a loss because I gave 13 years of my life to that organization, not just the years I was chairman. And so to see this spectacle happen, uh, I'm, I'm very sad about it personally. Yeah. I was going to ask you how it, how it feels to have the word conservative, uh, sort of hijacked by this kind of, you know, nationalism. And we should know, by the way, Bannon's not a conservative. He's a, he's a Leninist actually. Yeah. He's an avowed Leninist. Absolutely. Oh, he's just an opportunist. Stop it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he has no political ideology. He's just a, yeah. he is just an opportunist. On Tuesday, Voters in Arizona and Michigan, Missouri, Kansas, and Washington headed to the polls for primary elections. In Arizona, three Trump-backed election deniers have won their Republican primaries. Shortly after midnight on Wednesday, the Associated Press called the Republican Senate primary for Blake Masters, who's a venture capitalist who was propelled to the front of a crowded field. Masters is going to face Democratic Senator Mark Kelly in a November race uh, that could determine which party controls the Senate. Uh, Arizona Republicans chose state representative Mark Fincham as their nominee for secretary of state. Fincham is an election denier who sought to decertify the results of the 2020 election and attended a stop the steal rally on January 6th. So naturally, Arizona Republicans want him in charge of the election system in the state. Trump backed election denier Abraham Hamaday won the primary in the attorney general's race. And as we're recording The gubernatorial primary between Carrie Lake and Karen Taylor Robeson is still too close to call. Uh, We have talked about that race in particular uh, on on the podcast before because it's one of the races where Democrats have been um, meddling in uh, Republican primaries to try and boost the election deniers. So how are you both thinking about the success that the big lie candidates have had in Arizona? And what are you going to be looking for as we head toward the general election? Susan? Well, I think Al said it earlier, you know, the the primary tells you about what the situation is within the primary of, of that party. So in this case, the Republican Party. So we can and we'll dissect that in a minute. But it doesn't necessarily tell you the general election and where there are opportunities after a primary. Both sides kind of go back to their corners and they look for those who are gettable. 
So what I'm looking to really break out once we have all the data is that data-driven narrative of who showed up in this Republican primary and who voted for Robeson and not for uh, Lake, because those voters could be gettable for Democrats. And that's what I want to be able to see. It's going to be very interesting if there was any younger people turning out. What what was the makeup of, of the primary voters and where they went to? Because I think a lot of them, you know, as our work in the Lincoln Project, like they become gettable. There's that, that five to 15 percent can they, they could be gotten. And we saw it in some other races around the country, even in the in Kansas with the referendum on abortion being on the table because it was a Republican primary. And yet a lot of you know, there were enough Republicans voting no on the issue, along with Democrats that say no to extremism. So I don't think it's going to be so much about Donald Trump when you look at the general election. I think this is about extremism. And once again, that is going to be a driving force, I think, for Democrats to get people turned out and potentially persuade some you know, moderate or center-right Republicans. Yeah, I think that's right. Al, what do you think about Arizona? Yeah, I, I think, yeah, I, I think we had two conclusions. One is that Donald Trump uh, still is the big figure in the Republican Party, and he proved it in these primaries. Uh, Harvard uh, had a recent poll showing that he's clearly the candidate to beat in 2024 if he runs. And so we learned that. But we also learned the big elephant in the room for the general election is going to be Roe v. Wade and the Supreme Court. And voters in a very, very conservative state, I would say Kansas today is one of the five most conservative states in the country. Uh, when voters in Kansas of all states voted overwhelmingly to uh, uh, on that referendum, it also showed me what a force they would have. Look, the way I look at this election, the... Uh, the outcome of the senatorial and gubernatorial races in Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan are so critical to 2024 because the Republicans decided to nominate far-right candidates. Uh, the Democrats have some pretty decent candidates, right? Uh, and so if the Democrats win those Senate races, A, it has a lot to bear on who's the majority in the Senate, but also it shows Republicans that they have an uphill climb in the presidential race in those key states. We could win or lose Arizona. I don't know if that's necessarily going to decide the 24 election. Uh, it could, but I don't I don't necessarily think so. Those three states in the Midwest, uh, defined by the disparity in points of view of the candidates for those top statewide offices, will tell me really what's going on in our country. And so I'm, I'm gonna watch that carefully. And uh, obviously, we'll be, we'll be looking at Roe v. Wade's not going to go away. And so it'll be a factor in the general elections. And we'll see how that plays out. Yeah. Since you brought up Kansas, I want to recap that for our listeners and, and look a little bit more closely at it, because I think you're totally right. This was a ballot measure that would have allowed the legislature to ban abortion in that state. Uh, and it was defeated by nearly 18 points. Now, there's a, there's a couple of important things here. There was huge turnout. The overall vote count on the amendment exceeded 900,000. Uh, now, that's 150,000 votes shy of the 2016 presidential general election turnout and only about 50,000 votes shy of the 2018 general election uh, for governor. 
this, um, I think, I think you're totally right, Al, that this could be a big signal that abortion rights could motivate Republican leaning voters, uh, in a state Donald Trump won by 15 points in 2020. Um, but the overwhelming defeat came even with low turnout in the democratic primary races, fewer than 250,000 people voted in the party's Senate primary and only a few thousand people, uh, a few thousand more people voted for uh, the incumbent democratic governor, Laura Kelly. Um, so Susan, what are you, how are you thinking about this? Cause it's, it's a, um, in, uh, in political strategy circles, right? We often talk about abortion or in the past we have talked about abortion as, you know, an issue that has a high level of intensity among people who care about it, but it never materializes into turnout at an election at the ballot box, right? That's generally the way, you know, political consultants think about it, right? It's great to raise money off of, it's great to whip up a base, but it doesn't, you can't count on those votes to turn out. Yes, so but has that changed? <laughs> but technically abortion has never been on the ballot before. True, and true. And on Tuesday, it, it was literally, actually, literally was on the ballot. On the ballot it wasn't right. like, what judges do you want? What kind right. of people do you want? You literally had the issue on the ballot, which is why I think we have to be careful of the takeaways when we look at Kansas, because that was absolutely right. Kansas, I mean, conservative, conservative, conservative state. So it's the fact that it went down, you know, 60, 40, doesn't mean that 60% of Kansans are pro-choice. They are not for extremism or people or government dictating what should happen to their bodies. And maybe some of them are pro-life, but really have a problem with the way that rape, incest, life of the mother, not even being an option, that, that extremism, that is a problem. And when you look at the, the turnout in, in Kansas, it was double what it was in, it was in the last presidential, I believe it was. I think that's right. Or it could have even been double in two than what it was in 2008. What I'm looking for, particularly on this issue, though, of abortion being a turnout um, possibility for Democrats is how did the young people turn out? Did this affect turnout among younger people? Because this you're talking about women who always took for granted, not took for granted, who wouldn't have thought like they had a right. You had a right over your body. And now you don't. And I remember so well in 2016, Hillary Clinton's people being so frustrated because they were, there was such a big age divide and they couldn't get younger women on board as much. And the older women were just saying, don't you remember there was a time before Roe v. Wade and younger people were going, mm, nope, sure don't remember that. Don't, what are you talking about? That could never change. So I think having such a basic fundamental right taken away, especially when younger people see that, I that's what I'm looking for. Did rota registration increase among that group? And did turnout really move? Because if it did, that could be, I mean, a lot can happen between now and then, but for Democrats, if they can harness that younger vote on that issue, that can really make be a huge. difference. Susan's absolutely right. The the number that I want to get my arms around is the percentage of voters on this issue who are, you know, who are uh, not pro-choice, but, but, but respect the right of others to make a different decision. In other words, people who are saying, you know what, I'm not pro-abortion, but that does not mean that my neighbor doesn't have a right 
to opine differently. That percentage of people, to me, is a key percentage for the elections and for policy and everything else, because this is not a binary decision. This is not you're either for abortion or against abortion. What about that middle group that says, listen, I have my own personal views, but I prefer that others be able to have theirs as well. That number we need to come to grips with in a major way. I think there's also one other number to add into there, Al, and that's those who are pro-life, who I agree, there's those who say, like, I don't have the right to make a choice for my for my neighbors. But then there are those who are pro-life who say, you know what, if a 12-year-old is raped, yeah, she should yeah. not be forced to carry that uh, that that baby to right. term. If if a woman is raped, if there's incest in the family, this these should not be that's just too extreme even for me in my personal beliefs. Gotcha. So I would yeah. add that into the 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 another slice of people I would yeah. be looking at. Right. Yeah. 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 Well I think said. all those data points would be very uh very instructive. There's one other thing thought I want to throw on the table which is that this sort of reminds me the way this ballot measure played out um Tact, just tactically speaking, it reminds me of the 2004 Bush Rove Melman strategy of getting uh, anti-marriage equality uh, ballot initiatives in key swing states that ultimately drove evangelical turnout, which took Bush to the White House in 2004. It was largely credited as, as, as the success strategy there. Democrats might have an opportunity to do the same thing here. Not that that not that it's a good, but just saying like get this is the way Susan. It's the first time it was actually on the ballot. To your point, I agree. Right? As if you long can put abortion as, on the ballot in those places, as long as we yeah. agree that there's a difference between trying to find an issue that motivates voters rather than thinking that issue is the number one issue of voters. Yes, totally. There, there there's just a yep. fine line there. Yep. Okay. There's one other thing I want to get to quickly. In Michigan, Peter Meyer became the second House Republican who voted for impeachment to lose in a primary election. He was ousted by former Trump administration official John Gibbs. And Gibbs, by the way, benefited from advertising from the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. Yes, that's right. Let me say that again. This is, the, this is one of the primaries where the Democrats spent more than $300,000 in ads attacking Gibbs for his alliance with Trump with the goal of boosting him in the primary, believing him to be a less viable general election candidate. And Lucy Caldwell has called this playing with fire. Uh, so, uh, you know, our, we've spent a lot of time on the podcast talking about this strategy uh, from Democrats. Uh, they've, you know, been spending in a, to advance more radical Republicans uh, in, in these primaries, thinking it's going to help them in the general. And on the whole, most of our guests have been concerned about the potential per paving the way for these anti-democracy candidates to take office. Um, there's both obviously the risky playing with fire dimension of this strategy and then also the hypocrisy of talking about defending democratic ideals and then boosting people who could conceivably win and subvert elections. So um, I think that one thing that demands to be said here is that it is still Republicans voting for these people. Uh, but Susan, I wonder how you're thinking about this approach. I don't know if we've discussed it yet, um, we, but Democrats no. spending so much time talking about the importance of protecting democracy and then, you know, turning around and pushing anti-democracy candidates in Senate in, in Republican primaries. So here's the thing for me is I do think it's dangerous. At the end of the day, it's one thing to try and, and I'm not a big fan of playing in other people's primaries. I'm a Republican. I can play in Republican primaries. I'm not sure I should belong playing in Democrat primaries. Um, that being said, it's usually based on an ind a candidate's individual 
personal flaws, i.e., I think of forcible rape mm. in a way of forcing that primary in Missouri. That guy. Remember that, that guy? Yeah, Atkins. Yeah. And, yeah. and Claire McCaskill actually played there. But it was against yeah. the individual. To mess around with our democracy, given what we know can happen in elections, was it really worth it for the potential of Gibbs getting elected? Yeah. And that's what scares the hell out of me, is that there's probably not going to be a huge majority in the, in, if the Republicans take over. And all of a sudden, a guy like Gibbs has an outsized voice because McCarthy's going to need, if he takes the majority, if he takes the House, he's going to need every vote. So that guy's vote is going to matter. He's not just going to be an outlier. Yeah. So I, I am. I, I hate the idea of it. And I'm. My experience in elections the last couple of cycles tells me that you don't know what's going to happen. Anything exactly. Can happen. That's and now just you're it. risking yeah. our 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 country in a very direct way because it is about the democ our democracy. And remember that very few people saw Trump coming. Go ahead, Al. Correct. Yeah, no, I, I agree with Susan. Look, I anything that promotes the French on either side, primarily mine, is not a good idea for me. I'm first for trying to get our nation away from French thinking and all the dangers that have come about because of it. And uh, promoting French candidates, uh, in my opinion, is bad for America, whether Democrats fund it or Republicans. In this case, I think it's doubly bad that Democrats are doing it. So anytime you're putting money on the side of a French candidate, I think you're doing a bad thing for our country. And that's basically my point of view. All right. Now that we're up to speed on some of the biggest stories this week, let's turn to what you're watching under the radar. Al, what do you got for us? Elon Musk. Everybody hates that do? I like Elon Musk, so it's becoming yeah. a, no, I mean, it's what, becoming a what does he want to do? I mean, I, my sense is that's obviously hard to predict. I have a sense he wakes up in the morning and something comes up in his mind and he wants to do it. His in and out of Twitter has been fascinating for me. Obviously, it was not a financial play. You know, I'm own part of a wealth management company and and that price for Twitter stock just didn't make any sense financially. So I figured a guy as smart as him, uh, you know, having probably the wealthiest man in the world, he's got to be doing it for politics and sending a message. And he was clearly sending a message that he may well be turning Twitter into a, you know, into a right wing or conservative, uh, you know, oh social God. media giant. Yeah. I don't know what his mindset is about Twitter. I don't know what he plans to do with the kind of wealth that he has in terms of the election process, but somebody with that immense amount of wealth, something that no human being has ever amassed before, can certainly, you know, can certainly do things in the political process that have some permanent uh, results in it. And what is it that he's going to do? Is he going to play in the presidential race? Is he going to play with social media and ownership of of, comp of entities that, that have a, a place in your thinking, what's Elon Musk going to do? Because if he does something in the political arena, he's got the ability financially to do something huge and big. I think that's a good under-the-radar story. Susan, what do you got? So on Tuesday, there was a Democratic debate uh, in the New York 12 primary between Jerry Nadler and 
uh, Carolyn Maloney, and, and there was one other candidate not as well known, but you have two prominent Democrats fighting it out in a debate. And the question was, is do you support Joe Biden running in 2024? Mm -hmm. So a lot, there's a lot of changing minds. There's a lot of hand wringing, (laughs) but it's what's interesting about it. And what I'm looking to see moving forward is that there's been a lot of talk. There's been a lot of media stories, put it however you want, but will we see more Democrats starting to come out with positions on this? and really be forced to buy it, maybe by the Republicans in an election or others, trying to see, will you support Joe Biden in 2024, mm-hmm. which could potentially, because there's so much talk, like, well, we don't know if he's running or not, blah, blah, blah. It would be really amazing to see if Joe Biden p- says he's either in or out before the midterms, before. because if yeah. he is out, it really does change things. And this slow drip, drip, drip may force his hand. So I'm going to be watching that, especially over the next week among House members, but then all the way through to uh, the midterms. That's a really good one. I try. Hey, so said, is, <laughs> is Trump running? <laughs> I, I, I personally, my belief, which no one agrees with, is that Forgetting what they say, I believe at the end of the day, you will not see Joe Biden or Donald Trump on the ballot in 2024. Wow. That's my, wow. which no one hear. agrees with. So I, yeah, you can send <laughs> yeah, all wow. the hate I've okay. got in it. You can, I'm <laughs> no, wrong. I, don't, I know I'm wrong. But, uh, but no, no, no. I, I don't think Biden's on the ballot. I don't think Biden's on the ballot. And I, uh, I don't know about Trump. They I don't think he can do, help one himself. One can't but. be there without the other. <laughs> right. Right. I agree with that. I think if one of them says I'm running, you'll probably have a replay. And uh, and if one of them says he's not running, uh, you know, it's tempting for the the other party to choose someone else. Uh, that's we'll see. We shall see. <laughs> uh, All right, yeah. let's flip over to Politicology Plus, where we're going to continue uh, that discussion about primaries, and we're going to look at some really useful analysis for Democrats that it was in Axios that one of our favorite guests, Lene Erickson, brought to my attention. But before we do that, where can everybody find you on the internet, Susan? <laughs> um, on Twitter at Del Percio S. <laughs> Al? Uh, on Twitter at uh, al Cardness. And I'm on Twitter at Ron Steslow. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. If you haven't yet, we'd appreciate it if you could open up the Apple Podcasts app and give us a five-star rating and review over there. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode. <laughs>